warning signs can be annoying, but we all know that they can also save lives. The Seattle Times reported a story that is sadly all too familiar. A 58-year-old woman ignored a sign telling her not to cross a flooded road. And in ignoring the sign, was swept away and perished. The water on the road probably looked shallow to her, and she couldn't know how strong the current really was. But instead of trusting the warning sign there, she trusted in her own judgment and perished because of it. This tragic story in of itself serves really as a warning to all of us here this morning. When we ignore important warning signs, we may reap horrific consequences. And the same is especially true when we ignore the warnings given to us in God's word. Today's text contains such a warning here in Zechariah 5. What is this warning? The warning is this. God will judge unrepentant evildoers and banish evil forever. And so the question for all of us here this morning is whether or not we will take this message seriously or will we ignore it and trust in our own judgment instead? We turn then to Zechariah 5 this morning and we see this warning given to us really in two visions. First, there is God's justice given to evildoers in verses 1 through 4. And then in vision 7, we see God's banishment of evil in verses 5 through 11. So we began then with vision 6, God's justice given to evildoers. As we turn there, and as this vision opens up to us, we see that Zechariah is immediately confronted with a giant flying scroll. And not just any scroll, but a giant flying scroll that is 30 feet long by 15 feet wide. It's a startling picture of a massive scroll about the size of a billboard just flying through the air like a predatory bird. We quickly learn from the angel that this scroll is the curse that God is sending out over all the land. He's sending out this scroll, in a sense, to devour and hunt down those who have gone unpunished for their sins. It will punish the unpunished evildoer, and bring justice to them. It will enter their home, that is where they feel most safe and secure, and it will destroy them completely, brick by brick. And so this will happen to the thieves. It will happen to the oath breakers. It will happen to the liars who are in the land. And just as they lied for selfish gain and broke into other places and stole so God's curse now is going to pillage them and bankrupt them completely. They will get what they gave to others around them. And so that's essentially what is being said here in verses 3 and 4. But despite understanding the general meaning of this vision, we may still have some questions that are unanswered. For instance, why in the world is the curse in the form of a giant scroll? Like, Why isn't it pictured as like a dragon or something like that instead? I feel like that would be more fitting here. 
But as we come to understand the background to this vision, there were very good reasons to have the curse in the form of a scroll. The first reason is because of passages like Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 19. But if you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all his commands and statutes that I'm giving to you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and kneading bowl will be cursed. Your offspring will be cursed and your land's produce and the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. We're starting to see the similarity here, I think, between the two. You can't get away from this word curse here. So in picturing the curse as a scroll, it reminded God's people that this curse was ultimately brought upon them for not keeping the law written on the scroll. And for those who failed to obey it, a curse was upon them. So this is one reason why the curse is pictured as a scroll. But then there is also a second reason. Picturing the curse as a scroll conveyed the seriousness of disregarding God's word. This reality would have been evident to the Israelites as they remembered what took place in Jeremiah 36. To summarize this account briefly, Jeremiah is ordered by God to dictate his words of judgment upon Israel in hopes that they would repent of their sins and that they would turn back to God. So Jeremiah writes all the words of God down on a scroll to deliver to the king, to King Jehoiakim of Judah, in hopes that he would take this warning seriously and turn from his sinful, evil ways. So the scroll is then delivered to the king. And what does he do? As the scroll is read, he cuts it up into pieces. And he throws it into the fire. He ignores God's word completely. And because of this, God's word, in a sense, comes back to eat him and his household alive. The king reaps the curse written on the scroll. And so this incident then, this vision, serves as a solemn warning to those who ignore God's word. For the curse of God's word will dwell in the house of the unrepentant lawbreaker. And it will, as John Calvin puts it, reduce them to nothing. With this background then, we can better understand why the curse is in the form of a scroll. And we can better understand the effects this vision would have upon the people of Israel. First, this vision would have brought comfort to those who were victims of very real evil. God was not and is not callous or indifferent to the pain that his people were experiencing on a daily basis. He was aware that thievery was taking place among his people. He was aware of the people who were lying and making false oaths for selfish gain at the expense of others around them. He saw these crimes among his own people, and he wasn't about to turn a blind eye to these evils. Instead, God had assured them that his scroll would punish the unrepentant evildoers. They would not get away with their crimes in the end, for God saw 
and he would make sure that they would be punished in the end. And in this, we too here this morning can find immeasurable comfort that God will give justice to the victim and encourages the victim who may have experienced grave injustices here in this life. Because while we pursue justice in this world, we all know that we don't always get it here in this lifetime. We may get a form of justice for the evil done to us, but it will never be perfect or exacting. But even in such moments, God sees and he will render perfect justice to the perpetrator in the end. And so we can have peace knowing that our God is an avenger. He will repay the unrepentant wicked and he will give justice. This vision then would have also served as a loving warning to those who were unrepentant in their evil. If the wicked didn't turn from their sins, if they didn't repent, like the woman who was carried away by the flood to death, so they too would be carried away by the flood of God's judgment that was about to rain down on them. This was God's warning to them then, and it remains true even for us here this morning. For as 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this. Like this passage then, this vision warns us that those who make a practice of sinning should have absolutely no confidence in their salvation whatsoever. Because salvation is far more than just being saved from the effects of sin on that final day. Salvation is about living in freedom from sin today. And if there is no progress being made in being freed from sin today, turning from it, then we should have no confidence in escaping God's judgment on the final day. And so as we hear this warning, this morning, we are to take God's loving warning to heart. And we must respond then by repenting of both known and hidden sins in our life immediately. Sin is very much like a vampire. It's powerful when it's kept in the dark, and it will suck the life right out of you. But if it's brought into the light, it loses its power completely and is often vanquished immediately. So in our repenting of sin, we must, as the body of Christ, continue to confess our sins to one another, bringing it into the light. Because God knew in his wisdom that we are weak sinners that need the help of one another in our fight against sin. And so he gave us the church. So we don't keep our struggle with sin hidden then, but we bring it into the light with trusted, mature believers who want the best for us. And to not do this then is to be prideful. It's to ignore God's warning. 
So we must churn and repent right away. But secondly, then, we must encourage one another to turn from sin with humility and love. And notice the focus on the last, the humility and love. This is how we do it with one another. Often, we will encourage one another in our fight against sin informally, as we get together with one another, as we share our struggles in prayer, and as we battle against our own sin and selfishness. And hopefully, all of us are already doing that already. But another way we do this is through the practice of corporate confession each and every Sunday. Our desire is to be reminded each and every week of the need to be confessing our sin to God and to each other. And so it's part of the reason why we have it, a part of our service each and every week. We must continually repent and grow in our repentance of sin and then look to Christ once more. Because contrary to popular belief, repentance is more than a one-time event that I do when I pray the sinner's prayer. It's more than a one-time event I do when I pray the sinner's prayer. Instead, repentance is for all of life. It's ongoing, and it's one of the primary ways we make progress in the Christian faith here together. And as Tim Keller points out, repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. Indeed, pervasive all-of-life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. And so in humility and love, we must encourage one another in this endeavor and then to be open and in humility allow others to point out our sins when we are struggling or when we are even blind to it. One of the final ways that we must encourage one another to turn from sin is, is through the very unpopular act of what we call church discipline. Let me preface this by saying that church discipline is a last resort option that our church never waltzes into. But this practice involves removing a person from membership due to their clear unwillingness to turn from a blatant sin that the Bible condemns. And in this process, we seek to closely follow the principles Jesus gives us in Matthew 18 and Paul in 1 Corinthians. And so church discipline ultimately serves as a loving warning that if the person doesn't turn from this unrepentant sin, that they should have no confidence that they will escape God's judgment in the end. And so the church renders a temporary judgment here on earth so that the person might escape eternal judgment as they take this warning seriously. So church discipline then is a means of warning for a person that if they continue on in their sin, they will be cut off from God. And the hope is always that they heed the warning and are restored to Christ. This brings us then to the final way we must respond to this vision and that is by looking to the Lamb of God. When we again think of the curse here in this vision, going out across the land, notice once more that it enters the homes of the wicked and the unrepentant. And when we see this happen, I think Israel would have thought back to a specific time in their history where this actually happened. I think they would have thought back to the Passover, 
Because at the Passover was a time where God's word went as a curse out over the land, and it went over Israel and Egypt, and it entered their homes. And for Egypt, this curse went into their homes and it brought great destruction to them. But on the other hand, Israel was spared at the Passover. And why were they spared? They weren't spared because they were more deserving or something like that at all. But they were spared because they trusted God's word and they looked to the Lamb of God in faith. They sacrificed a lamb and they spread the blood on the doorposts of their home so that the destroyer would pass over them. And it's in this way they were spared of God's curse. And so in the same way, we must look to the Lamb of God and what it pointed to. It pointed to Jesus Christ, who John tells us is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For it is only by Christ and his blood being shed for us that we can find forgiveness of sins. And it's only by his sacrifice that the curse of this scroll that we see is absorbed. For as Paul tells us in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So we must respond then each and every one of us here this morning by looking to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. And we do this over and over and over and over again each and every day. We preach this gospel to ourselves each and every day because it is the good news of what Christ has done that empowers us in our fight against sin. It is the good news of Jesus' victory that frees us from guilt and condemnation of our failings. It's what Christ has done that sets us free from the shackles of sin. And so as it's often been said, for every one look that you take at yourself, take 10 looks back to Jesus. So we listen then to God's warning by turning from sin encouraging one another in this effort, and then each and every day looking to Jesus over and over again. This brings us then to the seventh vision that Zechariah sees. And this vision then is a continuation of God not only banishing evildoers, but banishing on a much larger scale all of evil once and for all. As we look at verse 5, we find that the angel calls Zechariah to again look up and see, just as he did moments ago. And what he sees here is a a woven basket that, that is quickly approaching him. The angel then tells him that this basket contains all the sin and evil in the land. And upon this statement, he uncovers the basket and we find a woman sitting in it. The angel tells us that this woman represents wickedness. Now it's at this point we may have a question or two about this, right? Why is a woman being portrayed, uh, why is a woman portraying wickedness? You know, like, is this a case of misogyny? Is the Bible telling us that women are evil or something like that? No, not at all, though some have said that. And for those who think that the Bible is hating on women here, it's important to take note of the two women 
who banish this evil in the verses to follow. So this vision isn't trying to put woman in a bad light or something like that at all. That is not the point here. So what is the text trying to do by using a woman to portray wickedness? The short and easy answer is that evil and Babylon here in the text are grammatically in the feminine case. And so the author trying to connect all of these images together personifies evil as a woman to closely connect these bad ideas together. And so this is one of the reasons why a woman is representing evil in the vision. It just made sense to do so. But then I think there is a second and more powerful reason he does this. And this is to highlight, really, the struggle that Israel had in its history and the specific type of wickedness they dealt with. And that was with the problem of idolatry and really adultery. We really see this clearly in, in Hosea and Ezekiel, where, where Israel is compared to as an adulterous wife. God likens their idolatry to being an adulteress. And he, shockingly enough, even the letter of James catches on to this terminology as he calls Christians spiritual adulteresses. And so in using a woman to demonstrate this wickedness here, it was the type of idolatry and adultery that Israel was dealing with spiritually. So these are just a couple reasons why a woman would be used to represent wickedness here. Once this woman is identified as wickedness, uh, the angel then quickly pushes it back down into the basket. And, and with this imagery, there's, there's a fighting. This wickedness is trying to break free and get out. But the angel holds it captive by pushing it back down. And he seals the lid over it again so that it's contained and completely helpless. And after being subdued, it is carried by two women with wings out of the land of Israel and back to the land of Shinar, where it's built a shrine and placed on a pedestal. I think it's here again that we have a couple more questions about what's going on. First, where is Shinar, and why is the wickedness being brought there? And my guess is we don't know much about this place at all. But for us, it's important to know that Shinar was the ancient name for the land where Babylon, Erech, and Akkad were situated in Genesis 10 and 11. And most familiar to us, the land of Shinar was where the Tower of Babylon was constructed. As we think back to the story of Babylon, along with the people who rebelled there, what happened to them? What took place? Well, we remember that they were scattered across the land for the rebellion. And because of this, they were nothing more than a distant memory. And I think that's the key to understand what's going on here. I think that what God is saying in this vision is that he's taking evil and wickedness away from his land and his people, and he's bringing it to a place where it is nothing more than a distant memory. As one commentator puts it, sin is banished from the present history of Israel and brought to a far lost realm from where it can never return and where it belongs for all eternity. So this is why God then brings wickedness to Shinar. But then we also have to ask the question, 
why is wickedness built a shrine and put on a pedestal? That seems unnecessary. But part of the reason, again, is to show us that the type of wickedness being banished is that of idolatry and adultery. God is banishing this type of worship from his land completely. But it's also good to note here that this Hebrew word for shrine in your Bibles is also the same word used for house. So this wickedness, we should say, is confined to this house. Now track with me here. Why is this significant that it's being confined in this house? Well, by encasing this wickedness in the home, it really connects us to the previous vision we just heard, right? What is God's word going to do? It's going to go into the homes of the wicked and bring them to nothing. And here, wickedness being encased in this home is going to be destroyed by God's word. That's what we're supposed to see here. God's word is going to destroy this wicked idolatry and burn it down to the ground completely. And as New Testament believers here this morning, we see the fuller work of what God is doing already in this world. In Jesus' first coming, he defeated sin and death and is presently eliminating evil today as we submit to him and turn from evil and idolatry. And when Christ returns again, this vision will come to completion where evil, wickedness, and idolatry will be banished forever along with those who fail to churn from it. And so because of this hope and what this vision means here, we can be encouraged in at least two ways. First, because God is working to banish evil and idolatry forever, we ourselves can churn from sinful idolatry and sinful habits today. Because our strength does not come from within to banish evil, but it rests on our God who is working in and through us to purify us. So even as we were reminded from last week, it's not by strength, it's not by might, but it's by his spirit that we will conquer evil and the evil of our own hearts. So we can find strength and hope in what God is doing here as he does the same work in each of our hearts this morning. So whether those idols that we struggle with, whether those be the idols of power, the idols of approval, the idol of comfort or control, God is working to banish this once and forever. So in your battle, to surrender to Christ and to turn from idols, know that your efforts are not in vain because God is at work through the power of his indwelling spirit. But second, we can find great comfort in the reality that God will truly bring evil and injustice to an end in this world. To paraphrase the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible, Jesus is at work to make all the sad things that have ever happened to us come untrue. So because of God's promise to banish evil once and for all in the end, we can persevere in the face of death, in the face of calamity, in the face of hardships, for God has won the battle and he will crush evil in the end. He will make all the sad things that have ever happened come untrue. 
And so all that's been lost to us, much like Job, will be restored in a far greater way than we could ever possibly imagine or dream. And all that we could ever wish for or dream for will come true when we meet Jesus, who satisfies our souls completely with himself. So if you find yourself here this morning in the depths of despair or struggling with with depression or how you're not farther along in your battle with sin, be reminded of the bigger picture and promises found here in this vision. Know that evil, hardships, and sadness will not have the final word in the end. Jesus will, for it was finished at the cross. So let's pray together and meditate once more on what he has done for us. Father, we come before you and we thank you again for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus and that he has not left us to ourselves, but he has given us the Holy Spirit which works in and through us to banish sin and evil that we struggle with each and every day. We thank you that you, O Lord, are making all things new. And that evil will never, ever have the final word in the end. You will. So help us to persevere until the end. And may we gaze upon Jesus over and over again. Empower us, Lord, to the praise and glory of your name. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.